Hello everyone, thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Husky Talk. We are your hosts, Nolan Kegman and Joshua Peterson. This week we will be speaking with the head veterinarian of the Iditarod, Stu Nelson. Hello Stu, thank you for being on our show this week. Alright, well, glad to do it. So, we like to start off our show by asking all of our guests who or what inspired you to get involved in the Iditarod. Okay. Uh, well, my first year of involvement was in 1986, and uh, there was a little ad in one of the veterinary journals uh, looking for volunteer veterinarians to come to Alaska and help with the race. And, uh, of course, I've always been interested in athletics as myself and then also the animal athlete. And um, I've also enjoyed the wilderness, the big, big country, the wilderness of the north. And uh, so the combination of my interest in the animal athlete and that beautiful big country called Alaska, that seemed like the ideal opportunity for me. So I, uh, I jumped on that and I was accepted to the staff and actually I volunteered for nine years as a trail veterinarian. And then, um, then after that ninth year, I was asked if I might be interested in becoming the chief veterinarian. And I said, well, give me a couple of weeks to think about it because I knew it was a big responsibility, take a lot of time, a lot of work. And uh, that was uh, 23 years ago, so obviously you know what the answer was. All right, thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? About myself? Well, I'm a veterinarian, graduated in 1976 from the University of Missouri. I came from a family. My dad was a veterinarian. Uh, he chose to go into academia. He practiced for a very short period of time, a couple of years, and then he went into academia and uh, got all kinds of advanced degrees and board certification. Um, <clears throat> I chose a different route. I chose to be a general practitioner, and I continued my entire career in that manner. Um, <clears throat> now, one thing, as I mentioned, I do love the wilderness, the big country, and uh, I, I like to uh, have blocks of time where I can go and spend uh, in remote areas. And I also, of course, the Iditarod, it takes a lot of time. So what's happened, my career for the last 32 years has been as a relief veterinarian. And relief veterinarians are veterinarians that fill in for other veterinarians to give them time off and help when they need it. So by being a relief veterinarian in Alaska and Idaho, it enables me to schedule my work with Iditarod without having to worry about clinic responsibilities. I can focus on the one thing, and then also I can have blocks of time to do some of my remote uh, river trips that I like to do. So, uh, you know, obviously the sled dogs are a passion of mine, particularly in the winter, and doing remote river trips is a passion in the summer. And, of course, the Iditarod is pretty much a year-round job. Obviously, after one race finishes, we have a lot of, uh, you know, summary and wrap-up to do. And then shortly after that, it's time to start the cycle all over again, uh, preparing for the next race. But during the summer is our slower time, as you might imagine. And then as the fall hits, things become more intense to where it's basically a full-time job uh, through through the winter and uh, and the spring. So. Awesome. That just kind of gives you a brief overview. Yeah. All right. Can you tell us about the tests that the dogs have to go through before they are actually allowed to run that Iditarod? 
Yes, that's a very good question. The tests that are required right now, we're in the process of doing that. It just started uh, this past week, uh, last Thursday. And each dog is to be eligible to participate, has to go through our pre-race screening program. And that involves drawing blood samples for what we call CBCs and chemistry panels, which are just your basic health screens looking for any any underlying abnormalities that might be present on blood testing. And then also they have an ECG, or some people also refer to it as an EKG. They're both the same. It's an electrocardiogram. And what it does is it's electrical tracing of the heart uh, electrical pattern uh, to see if there's any underlying uh, indications of some abnormality that would put a dog at risk during the race. So that's part of our pre-race screen that's going on now. And the ECGs are recorded and the blood samples are taken by a staff of licensed veterinary technicians. My head veterinary technician is Tabitha Jones, and she coordinates a staff of 15 to 20 volunteer licensed veterinary technicians to be doing this work. And, you know, because we're doing a lot of dogs, the mushrooms can have up to 24 dogs screened. The average is about a little over 20. Of course, as you know, they start a maximum of 16. So obviously, if they have, uh, you know, a lot of good dogs, they might not know until very close to the race which dogs they're actually going to run, who is going to be their A team. So that's why we give them some extra positions there to fill so they can choose from their very best dogs. Other things that are required, of course, the pre-race screening begins about a month before the race. So we'll be doing about 1,350 dogs to 1,400 dogs going through that screening process. Also, within two weeks of the race start, they all have to have a veterinary physical exam performed by a veterinary, of course. And that's just your basic exam, listen to the heart, check the dog out, feel them, listen them, look at them, give them a good look over, just like when you take your dog into the regular veterinarians for a health checkup. So that's the veterinary physical exam. And then also within 10 days of the start, uh, the mushrooms are required to administer a dewormer that the Iditarod provides to them. And they administer to the, to the dewormer to their dogs. And that's not only for the benefit of the dogs, but also there are some parasites that dogs can transmit that can affect people, uh, roundworms, hookworms a certain type of tapeworm that's endemic, or in other words, it's established in in western Alaska along the coast, is a tapeworm that can cause uh, uh, serious illness in people. So we want to make sure that we're not contributing to any uh, illness problems with the human population for parasites, but also, obviously, for the benefit of the dogs if they don't have any parasites. So these are all these health things that we address as the dogs are preparing to enter the race. Nice. So we know you can't possibly do this alone. About how many veterinarians help out during the Iditarod? Okay, once again, a very good question. Uh, you know, this this is evolved, and I like, to, I like to use the terminology evolution. Our program has evolved over the years from the very first Iditarod. And it will continue to evolve as we learn more and we grow or our capabilities increase, technology helps us, 
obviously things will be different. It's evolutionary as in it, most other endeavors. And the very first I did ride only had one veterinarian. And now we have a total staff of approximately 55 veterinarians. Um, so we have 45 of those approximately, or we call the trail veterinarians, and that's the largest group, of course. Those are the veterinarians who actually do the physical examinations and evaluations of the dogs at the checkpoints on the trail during the race. So those are the ones that most people would see on television or, or be interviewed. You know, they're the ones actually we call the boots on the ground, the people that are actually working with the dogs and the mushers at every checkpoint. Then we have other support people. For instance, I have a very cardiologist who interprets all those ECGs that we're recording. You know, I, uh, I'm a general practitioner. I'm not a specialist. Um, and I certainly do not have a level of expertise to uh, uh, appropriately interpret all the ECGs. So there's a very cardiologist that does that. I look at all the blood results, and I feel comfortable doing that. But And then we have other veterinarians who uh, work with the drop dogs, dogs that are discontinued from their participation in the race for whatever reason. We have a group of veterinarians that are dedicated to those dogs. And, of course, you know, the Iditarod is a 1,000 miles long, and, um, and so we have to be prepared if a dog is discontinued from participation to make sure that that dog gets back to Anchorage safely and in good health. And so that can be picked up by their, um, typically the handlers of the musher will pick the dog up in Anchorage because the musher's on the trail. So their handlers, we get the dog back to their handlers in Anchorage where they can take him home. So, you know, I have approximately, uh, uh, let's see, I think I have uh, nine people signed up to do drop dog, veterinarians that are drop dog care. So you add all these numbers together and I have a chief of drug testing and um, we have some pathologists uh, and we so we have a number of consultants that kind of help us on any medical issues that we might have to address so so a total staff of about 55 all right how could someone volunteer to be a vet for that dinner run okay so typically the uh, of course, the applications um, are sent out in early June of the year prior to the uh, race start. And, uh, you know, it's part of this uh, cycle of the race through the year. After we wrap up the previous race, applications are sent out starting in June. And what I do is, of course, I have a list of veteran uh, veterinarians, those who have worked with the race before, so I know them. I know what their capabilities are and we'll send an invitation letter to those people. And then also people hear about the race. You know, they read articles in the magazine, they see uh, videos on television, whatever. They hear about it, they want to know. So they contact the Iditarod Trail Committee. And then um, <clears throat> there's a lady, Joanne, Joanne Potts there. And then of course myself, and then we would get that um, information that somebody is, is interested in applying. And so they would get a letter that just briefly describes some of the responsibilities and requirements. And then then everybody, even veterans, submit an application form to participate in the race. Now, <clears throat> veterinarians are required to have at least five years of practice experience already under their belts. In other words, a lot of new people just out of vet school, it sounds like a great adventure. 
they want to apply, they want to participate. But, you know, we're out there in the field, we're out there in the bush, and it's uh, the checkpoints are remote. They do not have a lot of sophisticated, uh, you know, diagnostic tools and laboratories and, and anything that might, they might need to examine a dog in the normal practice. So, obviously, the more experience a veterinarian has had actually working with animals, um, the more their, their knowledge base is going to increase and the better that they are at making judgment calls based on just a clinical impression through a physical exam. So most of my staff uh, on a given year, the majority are veterans of the Iditarod. So in other words, they've worked in another Iditarod prior to the, the year. And then for those who are rookies, we call them rookies to the Iditarod, they have to have at least five years of practice experience. They also have to be fluent in English, which sounds maybe a little silly, but you'd be surprised how many foreign veterinarians are interested. Certainly racing is big in Europe. And there are those that are very capable, but if English is broken or they don't speak English fluently, obviously communication is extremely important out there in the trails. So, so that's a, a criteria. Obviously, the more experience they've had in working with sled dogs in other races or with the animal athlete in general would be a, um, an advantage. So these are just the basic requirements to participate in uh, getting on the Iditarod staff. All right. So can you explain to our listeners how you actually examine the dogs out on the trail? Okay. Of course, you know, a big part of my role, obviously, is to educate, train my veterinary staff on, on the things that we're focusing on. These, these are endurance athletes, and um, they're like human marathon runners. Um, and in the horse world, there's what they call endurance riding which are long-distance events. And so, you know, there are specific things that we're looking for in assessing these dogs. But I also spend a significant amount of time working with mushers, trying to educate them as well on early signs of abnormalities or anything to observe for that's, that's not right and what to do if they see something. And so um, we are, uh, I try to have everybody, to the best of my knowledge or ability, have a, a common knowledge base so that we're working together uh, for, the, for the benefit of the dog in assessing them and, uh, and determining uh, what's the best for the dog. And I kind of lost my train of thought. I, got, I think I got on a tangent. What was the initial question again? <laughs> uh, so um, it's like, can you explain to our listeners how you actually can examine the dogs on the trail? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So doing the exams. Okay. So, so obviously... There has to be an interaction between a musher and a veterinarian at every checkpoint. And, um, and so, once again, I spent time, obviously, educating the mushers on anything to look for that would be out of the normal, what to, what to key in on. So there's that communication between the musher and the veterinarian checkpoint. So, so if the musher says, you know, well, this dog, Fido, you know, he's, uh, he's not eating as well as the other dogs. Okay, well, obviously we're going to address that uh, specific uh, observation and see if we can see any reason for it. Um, but the musher says, you know, all the dogs are doing well, no problems, everybody's happy, doing great. Then we have a routine examination uh, uh, protocol that we follow up through with, 
And of course, we have to work quickly because there are a lot of dogs. And, and in the early part of the race, the teams are very close together. As we get farther down the trail, you know, they start to spread out. Just like in any long-distance race, you know, the competitors start to spread out over time. But when they're right at the beginning, very close together, of course, things are happening extremely fast. But So we have our basic uh, examination that uh, I like to use an acronym, um, which is called HAWL, H-A-W-L. And, you know, I like the adage, keep it simple. Um Hall is very easy to remember because we know that Haw, H-A-W, is a voice command to the dogs. And so when the musher says Haw to the dogs, they, they know that that means go left. Uh, so Hall, H-A-W-L, is the acronym. So the things we're looking for, the things we're focusing on at the checkpoints, if the dog... You know, the musher said, dog's doing great, no problems. We still want to do our exams based on that HALL acronym. So H stands for hydration and heart. So obviously we want to listen to their hearts with their with our stethoscopes, make sure that the heart rate and rhythm is good. And obviously hydration is very important. We all know that you can get dehydrated, especially in a marathon event. So we want to make sure that their hydration is good. So that's H. A is appetite and attitude. So appetite, obviously these dogs need to eat well because they're burning like 10,000 calories approximately a day, which is a lot of calories. And so they need to eat well to maintain that calorie intake. So that would be appetite. Then A stands for attitude. And for any of you that have had your own pet dogs, pet cat, whatever, you know what that dog normally acts like, what their attitude, what their energy level is. And if Fido's acting a little droopy, a little mopey, not quite his bouncy normal self, well, then obviously that could indicate that there's something wrong with them. So very important to observe the dog's their attitude. And then W, part of this whole concept, W would be stand for weight or body weight. Uh, these are marathon athletes. So they're not fat. You know, the labs, I've seen a lot of labs in my days as a practitioner, and there aren't many labs that are lean and fit. Most labs are overweight because they have a very efficient metabolism. But these sled dogs are marathon athletes. They do not have much fat on them because they're endurance athletes. So we want to make sure that they have adequate fat reserves so that if they get caught in a storm out there during the race, that they have enough reserves, so if they miss a couple of meals, they're still okay. So weight, as we go through the race, very important, assessing body weight for adequate fat reserves. And then L would be the last letter in the acronym HALL, and L stands for lungs. Obviously, we want to listen to their lungs, make sure they're clear, make sure the respiration is normal, uh, that everything sounds good with the lungs. So that's, that's the focus of our uh, exams. And then if there is something a little different, abnormal, that the musher communicates to us, then we'll focus on that as well. We've got an example of an Iditarod dog team diary, the yellow okay, notebook. Okay, yes. Can you explain to us um, what this notebook is used for? Absolutely. Yeah, the dog team diary, it's actually officially called the dog team diary. Uh, in uh, Out there on the trail, most of the mushers refer to it as the vet. And by rule, it has to be presented to a veterinarian by the musher 
at every checkpoint. So what it does is it serves as a communication tool between the musher and the veterinarian and between veterinarians down the trail. Because, you know, we have over 20 checkpoints during the race. And so obviously it's important somehow for those veterinarians to communicate with each other as the team goes down the trail. So the, the vet book or dog team diary has all the dogs in the team listed by by their letter on their, um, there's a tag that they wear on their collar. It has the musher number and the dog letter. So all of those uh, on the front page of that is a list of all the dog's names next to their letter. And then throughout the, the, the book, there is for every checkpoint, a list of those letters. So then that's the way the veterinarians can refer to the uh, looking back uh, on the history of the dog, uh, making any notations. Obviously, we do our exams or evaluations. If there's anything, concern, any notes we want to make, any treatment administered, obviously that will be written in the vet book. If everything's great, no, nothing at all, at all really to comment on. Maybe they'll just put a happy face in there to indicate the dogs are doing great. Everything looks just wonderful. So, so it's a communication tool by rule has to present it to a veterinarian by the musher. Every checkpoint has to be signed by a veterinarian. It has to be signed by a musher. Can you talk to us about dog drops? For instance, why are dogs dropped and what happens after a dog is dropped? Okay, so dogs can be dropped for any reason. And there are a lot of reasons potentially. Uh, you know, it, it's a lot of work to take all 16 dogs to know because they all wear booties. They all have to be fed. If it's really cold, you know, they got to wear jackets. All this takes time and work. And in reality, a team can move very at a very normal pace without 16 dogs. They don't really need all 16 dogs to maintain a certain pace. But in any event, they can drop a dog for any reason. And it might be that maybe uh, sometimes they'll take younger dogs their first race and they only run them maybe half the race or whatever. So they just kind of get the experience. And so building a team for the following year, and they'll drop them if they're in heat. Sometimes that can create a real issue, distraction for the team. If they're uh, if they're just not as fast as the other dogs, obviously that could be a reason. Um, certainly if they're tired, um, you know, different dogs have different levels of stamina, conditioning, whatever. Some can just maintain a better pace than others, and so it could be fatigue. Obviously, any illness or injury would be a reason that um, a dog could be dropped. So, so there's a whole gamut of possibilities. And, and like I say, if a musher wants to drop a dog, they drop a dog for whatever reason. There's nobody's going to say you can't drop the dog. So, what happens when a dog is dropped? Well, I don't know. I, I assume you've studied the geography of the trail a little bit, so you're yeah. familiar with. Uh, checkpoints so mm -hmm. so the the checkpoints east of the range which would be basically from rainy pass back towards the uh, restart those dogs typically that would be dropped there would be flown back to anchorage in small airplanes we call them cessna 185s typically it's just a small two-person airplane but those dogs would be flown back in a small plane to anchorage of course as soon as a dog is dropped the musher has to fill out a form 
wider dropping, the dog's aim, all this good stuff. And then, then the veterinarian will do a physical exam on the dog if they haven't already, and then make any notations on, on their observations on the physical exam. So there's this paperwork that accompanies every dog. Actually, the, the drop dog forms are in, in, the, in, in four copy four copies. So ultimately, one of those copies ends up back in Anchorage for our records, and one goes with the dog all the way back home for the musher's records. Um, but anyway, so there's this written uh, paperwork that accompanies a drop dog. East of the range, they're flown back in the small airplane to Anchorage. They'll be reevaluated. All drop dogs are reevaluated in Anchorage after they return to Anchorage to make sure that they're in good health, they don't have any future or ongoing medical needs. So they're there to assess them to make sure they're good and healthy before they go back home. Now, after we get over the Alaska Range into the interior and then up to the coast, uh, that's a long way for a small plane to fly. The small planes are pretty slow, and they, they can't take very many dogs. So we have commercial planes available uh, to, uh, to fly dogs back to Anchorage uh, from, from the interior onto the coast. And, the, and the, the hubs, we call them, the locations for commercial transport are McGrath and Unilaclete. So what happens, a dog that's dropped in the interior, if it's not dropped at McGrath, uniquely dropped at a smaller checkpoint, the small airplanes at Hidride Air Force, which you're probably familiar with those people, they're volunteer pilots, they fly dogs from the small checkpoints in the Iditarod Air, Air Force planes, the 185 Cessnas, to the hubs, McGrath, uniquely, and then we'll collect dogs um, in the hubs and then once we get a certain number, then we can get a commercial flight uh, to take them on back to Anchorage. So I have drop dog veterinarians that are located at the hubs. So they reevaluate those dogs when they come from a small checkpoint to a hub. And then they'll fly commercially back to Anchorage. And once again, they'll be reevaluated to make sure that they're okay to go home. So that kind of summarizes uh, the drop dog uh, Probably, I think, for, for what you're asking. Nice. So, like, what is your favorite part of being the head vet for the Iditarod? Oh, there are a lot of, you know, that's a great question, too, because, you know, uh, I'm sure all of the veterinarians out there in the trail get asked the same question uh, in, in their way. Why do you do the Iditarod? Why do you participate? And, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of reasons. Um, obviously the dogs are great dogs, you know, the vast majority of them are just happy, go lucky, fun dogs. They're athletes. They love to run and they're fun to be with and to work with. So obviously that's a big drawing card. Another thing I enjoy in my specific role is I like sharing the knowledge that I gain with mushers and veterinarians. It's kind of like being a coach and putting a team together and then seeing the end result, you've assembled this team and you've prepared them and then they go out and do their work. It's just a pretty gratifying thing to be able to put that team together. Like I say, most of them in any given year are veterans, so they kind of know how things work, but it's like any team, no matter what team it is, football, soccer, basketball, whatever, you know, you have new people that can come in, so you prepare them, train them, 
build them into the team. So that's 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 gratifying to me. And then, of course, once again, just being out there on the trail. I mean, ultimately, that's what it's all about, being out there with the dogs, being out there in the beautiful big country and seeing the scenery and, and the people that you meet out there in the villages at the checkpoints. And the volunteers, I mean, they're just a wonderful group of people. And it's just a real honor to, to be with them, to work with them, and to have the role that I have with them. And, um, you know, over the years, I've been to all of the main kennels, visits with the mushers in the off-season, just to kind of get to know them and their operations better. That's been very gratifying to meet people in a, in a more relaxed environment. And uh, so there's just a lot of good things about it. And uh, it's been a real honor to be part of it for so many years. All right, nice. So the next segment on our show is lightning round. So I'm going to ask you some quick questions about you that you need to answer as quick as you can. Ready? I'll try. All right. Who is better? Who is treated better? Dogs or mushers? Dogs. Cake or donuts? Cake or do- cake. <laughs> Skittles or M and M's? Uh, M and M's. Winter or summer? Winter. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Favorite animal? I'd say dogs. Steak or fish? Uh, fish. <laughs> All right, so the last part of our show is uh, Mount Rushmore. You know Mount Rushmore, right? Sure, yeah. If you were asked to replace the four presidents' faces on Mount Rushmore to faces that have made a huge impact on the Iditarod, who would you choose? You can choose, like, mushers, volunteers, dogs, really just anything. Obviously, Joe Reddington has, if without Joe, we wouldn't have a race. So, um, you know, he, he deserves that front position. Well, you know, of course, I've worked with Joanne Potts for so many years, and she's almost a legend in the, uh, in the event and uh, still is, 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 plays a big role. So I put Joanne up there. And there are just so many people. Okay, Mushers, Allie Zirkel, you know, I just... Allie's just a great gal. It's a wonderful job, and uh, quite uh, quite a uh, um, a legend in her own right. And oh my gosh, there's just so many. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see, who do I make the fourth one? That's that's tough. Um, uh, let's see, I would. Um, I'm going to say one of my veterinarians who's been. Just uh, he's not not. This is the first year he's missed in many years, but he's just been a a great uh, contributor. Uh, Turner Lewis. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Stu. All right. Well, it's my honor. Hopefully, uh, with this uh, horse throat, I've come through sufficiently. We'll hope you feel better. Yeah, well, I'm doing my best. Special thanks to Stu Nesson for being on our show this week. Credit to Hobo Jim for our theme song, Be a Day to Rock Show.